Hello and welcome to the Austrian AI podcast. I'm your host, Manuel Paseka, and today I have the pleasure to have on the show Linda Anderson. Linda um, is a computational linguistic by training and is doing her PhD work on text mining within the pattern domain at the Technical University of Vienna. As of 2018, she's the CEO of her own spin-off company, Artificial Researcher, a scientific knowledge management system for researchers and information search professionals. Hello, Linda. Thank you for coming on to the show. Yes. Hello, Manuel. Thank you for having me on the show. And I'm looking forward to the interview. Me too. Me too. There are several things that I want to talk with you on the show today, um, starting out with your own background and about um, uh, computational linguistics and uh, text mining. And as well, I think it's very interesting about your work on, on, on the artificial researcher and uh, what, what your goals are with the company and um, the surrounding challenges. But maybe we can start out um, by with you giving a short introduction about yourself, your background, um, your career, and maybe, although I know ontological questions are always difficult, but what is a computational linguistic and how do you become one? Okay, uh, so actually I will have to go back quite far. I started my information uh, interest in my information uh, retrieval already back in 1998. Eight, when I was thinking of becoming a librarian, but then I found this really interesting college which had this information design three-year bachelor program, which I ended up doing. And there I started to be within working with how to prepare text and present text and also how to extract text from different type of resources. So newspaper, statistical information and so forth and try to join them together. And there my interest for working with text started. Mm-hmm. So I did a, a work with a bachelor degree, a degree in information design with Mellard Allen University College. And then I concluded when I have done that work, I needed to know more about programming as well as more about the linguistic part. So I decided to go to the Stockholm University and do a linguistic study there. And here is where it comes to uh, linguistic. When you do computation linguistic, you usually do a uh, two to one to two years first general linguistic to learn about all the theory about the language. And then you approach programming using then. Uh, Use, uh, seeing programming language as a language mm-hmm. and then you enter into that so I did that for a long time and then I started again also working with the industry industry at the same time uh, so I always have tried to do a bit of educational uh, work and then also doing industry work at the same time so I actually always combined industry and uh, educational work mm-hmm. when I finished there I concluded I need to do more programming. So I went to KTH uh, in Sweden and did some courses there to learn more programming and the insight of the computer. So I, oh, this, this has been a progress of me that seeing that, okay, I'm missing something here. I need to learn about it and mm-hmm. then I need to apply it at the industry. So, and in 2009, I was offered to do a PhD at the Technical University in Vienna. And this is also where I combined doing my PhD and working with the industry. So it took me a long time to go through the process of combining industry and education. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And in 2017, I got uh, a prize of the most promising PhD results from the I2C. And uh, the year after, we got further prizes from the Austrian Angel Investor, the most valuable um, uh, product. And uh, that's when I decided to start my own company. In 2018, Artificial Researcher IT GmbH, mm -hmm. which I started with uh, three lovely co uh, three lovely women. So actually, it's uh, Dr. Florina Peroy, one of uh, my colleagues at the Tuvin, and then it's Jenny Anderson, which is my sister, and she also worked. She has uh, a bit of the same history from me some, as me. She has done programming since she was around nine and then we did uh, she did a lot of other stuff and then she took her uh, work that uh, did her education at uh, at kth mm -hmm. and then we have nina anderson which is actually also a sister of me <laughs> mine which uh, uh also did a lot of stuff and then she ended up working with technology and now she's in the grocery industry but that's also something that in it's emerging into technology how to you can buy from home and things like that so mm -hmm. we are very technical oriented and yeah that's that's me in a nutshell I would say this in going from industry to education going from industry to education and I think that is actually the embraces what is uh, um, where you call it a, uh, um, a learning for life Mm -hmm. That education is not something you do between you are six and 19 and then you do a university study and then you go to the industry. No, mm -hmm. you need to learn all the time. So you need to step through the learning process all the time and come back to the university, take some courses and then go and apply it mm -hmm. in real life. So, yeah. Of course, of course, That's definitely. Me. That makes uh, <laughs> continuous learning is, is a requirement almost now in, in modern times. Yeah. But going back to, as you said, the computational linguistics, if I understood correctly, it's right. You said it's this combination of having an understanding of what languages, like what's the structure, what is the underbelly of languages in general, in combination with the capabilities of um, making use of, of modern computer systems to analyze and process and really work with these languages, I guess, at scale. Yes. So actually, it's. Think about uh, uh, language. When 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 we learn language as human, you uh, usually repeat uh, what your father, what your mother says, and what your teacher says, and they correct you. Mm -hmm. And then you start learning that uh, language is something about uh, has some certain rules, and this is what you try to teach the computers or let the computer to learn that there is certain rules uh, how you uh, pronounce how how you say words because words is not just randomly picked and then it, they have a meaning so this uh, idea we had back in I would say 1970, 1980 and also 1990s where we had the of words mm -hmm. so we just took one document and said regardless how it's shaked, uh, we just say that the words that are the most frequent in here would be relevant. And then we concluded, no, it's not relevant because that would be preposition and conjunction, so and, or, and things like that. So 
what what computation linguistic does is actually looking upon what is implicit and what is explicit and taking what's implicit, the understanding that the human has and try to make it explicit so the computer can understand why it uh, why it is so. Why is um, a word combined in, in such a way? Why is the word bus, what is the meaning with bus slot card and when bus stands for itself and slots stand for itself and when cards stand for itself. Bus slot card is a semi-divisor, but if we just take out the bus, it could be a transportation, mm -hmm. a double vehicle bus, or it can be part of a semiconductor device. So these are the things that you need explicit teach the computer. The new, uh, new more, more uh, advanced, more, um, algorithm can learn this explicit, mm -hmm. uh, this implicit knowledge explicit by itself by giving the correct training data to the algorithm to learn it. Mm -hmm. So they become more and more understanding the connection between uh, that language is not random, words is not randomly said. And that's what I think linguistic is about, to actually trying to get what we have as a cognitive uh, ability and try to make that cognitive implicit uh, understanding more explicit for computer to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do, do I understand correctly that actually, like, let's say, in, in, in um, connection with AI or artificial intelligence, as I understand it, natural language processing or understanding goes back really a long time in this field. If, 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 if I understood it, like, even like we think about Chomsky or even like, um, if uh, we think about uh, Neumann as well, they're, 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 let's say they're to processing or the understanding or making a machine be able to understand and uh, process language has been one of the of the initial tasks or like has been there from the beginning in the topic of AI where, where as we said obviously um, there that for example think only about something like the Turing um, test that like if if the idea that making a machine be able to understand process and and create language um, it would be almost identical to being able to generate a machine that has something like a general artificial intelligence? Um, yeah, I would say it was long a question, but I would say like uh, it, it, language understanding in AI co goes back very far. I would say some of them start, um, what I look at when I, I look at computation linguistic or corpus linguistic, which is a bit of a different computation linguistic is more about making the computer understand the language, the, the significance of language and what is significant in, in, the, in a language. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, corpus linguistic is observing what language is about, what, what frequency it says, why are they using a certain term in certain contexts and so forth. And if we go back, uh, I would go back uh, and look at corpus linguistics starting in 1949 with uh, George Kingsley Sif. Uh, and you know this famous Sif curve. And mm -hmm. there I would say that we started to observe there are certain patterns which actually is documented. Of course, you can go back to uh, the Greek. The Greek also philo uh, talked about language and the pattern of language. Uh, grammar structure has been, a long, uh, has been around for a long time. So, but 
there I would say with George Kingsley's if they come this idea that you can actually observe certain patterns in language and learn from that and conclude what's important. Then I think in the 1950s when um, Lund came around, he worked a lot with uh, um, summarization. He did the first indexes, which uh, um, at that time you should remember that in 1940, 1948 was mm -hmm. the first uh, semiconductor at IBM. So the first semiconductor device, the transistor, was came then. So we need to remember that this is um, this is really old school computers. <laughs> um, so uh, so I would say that that George Kingsley Zip actually came out and said, okay, there is certain patterns that language have and we can learn from that and we can teach computer or at that time, more or less a calculator to see the pattern. Mm -hmm. And of course, you also have the Turing with, uh, uh, with all the encryption because you can see language as some kind of uh, code that you need to um, decode. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the point of the computer trying to decode the language. As you human, when you start, when you are bored and you start learning that people are talking, mm -hmm. it's some something very new for you and you need to learn how to decode it. And it's the same for the computer, how to learn how to decode it. And we as a computation linguist or a computer science is there to actually teach, not teach, but actually give the computer algorithm the power to have to learn how to decode it mm -hmm. and um, I would say through 1950 to around 1985 or a bit later this teaching computer was more regular based heuristic based that you say you you did a grammar structure and they tried to learn from that and then when we got more power in the computer we could actually um work with data-driven algorithms so we had that shift there in the mid 80s early 90s from this regular um regular expression grammars, you can mm -hmm. say, more or less, to uh, to becoming more data-driven, that the algorithm should learn uh, from the data itself. Yeah, I I think I stopped there and see if I... <laughs> yes, no, no, it, 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 it's definitely very interesting. Particularly interesting is that you said, like, the shift in the 80s that goes more to, like, data-driven, so learning algorithms, as you said before, right? They're in many ways, they're, like, heuristic, so they were... Uh, human-written um, algorithms and mechanisms to 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 make a machine process and understand language. Um, it's interesting to to to, um, to think about this data-driven shift in the '80s because, like, to me myself, um, uh, to me this was always one of the of the big topics about uh, the, the deep learning hype that we have, like, as after 2012, where we said everything we move away from any kind of of uh, um, let's see algorithmic human algorithmic driven um, models and solutions and we try to make a machine give machine learning the opportunity to do go the complete way so end-to-end -end machine learning models that that it that are fed with only with data and you expect them to be able to learn almost everything um but maybe to not get sidetracked on this one because obviously this is a huge topic um i would maybe try to, to bring it a bit back to 
to you and your PhD work, which is on text mining within the patent domain. And maybe you can, uh, you can, uh, as we touched upon it already a bit, talk about what is actually text mining, text mining and information retrieval. If you can, if you give an, our listeners a bit of an introduction of what is the focus of text mining and um, what are some of the challenges in this area? Okay, uh, so um, text mining can be a lot, but if we just look uh, look upon it from the written text, so that's where I'm expert. So we 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 don't talk about speech technology and mm -hmm. text to speech and speech to text and, and so forth. Um, I would say it's about extracting knowledge from a, a large collection in order to answer a question or uh, find uh, information need. That's what text mining about, in order to learn something from huge amount of text. Mm -hmm. It could be that you want to find synonyms, so you want to find uh, a different type of relation between words. It could be a question and answer system where you want to actually find out when the flight goes to Denver um, and have a system for that. And that's the part where you extract knowledge from data. And then you can apply this knowledge to create question and answering system, to create information retrieval system. You can uh, apply uh, uh, also information extraction is a big, uh, large thing, which where the question and answering is in. And it's all about actually trying to get knowledge out of text. And if we look at information retrieval, this is also have a long history back. You can go back to 1950s. And in I think in 1965, the United States government had their first publication on different type of indexes. Um, so information is retrieval is to finding some kind, having some kind of structure way to find uh information you need from a huge collection mm -hmm. and in the beginning that was actually something that m manually was done so people were reading these paper librarians uh, or indexer were reading these paper picking out important words that they put into a database mm -hmm. so people could actually search on that and then find out that this paper is about uh, agriculture and and uh, uh, crops and so forth. So they could actually then take this paper and read it because it was important for their research. So they were uh, manually annotating those, if I understand it, and yes, find the keyword based uh, database to 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 find. Research. Yes. Uh, and actually, you have not had a switch from that. We still are working with keywords. Uh, keywords. Mm -hmm. So you in Google, for example, you write in what you're interested in, and then it's trying to match it to the best fit, which which uh, which answer, which document would give the, you the best answer. Um, we are slowly shifting from that to saying instead of me having knowing what trying to translate my inf what my information needs is about and put that in three keywords, uh, we can now say that I have this document which I'm interested in and I would like to have similar document, please find that. And this is actually something that I did in my uh, PhD in my patent text mining uh, applications where 
in patent, you have um, a claim, which is the legal part of a patent. Mm -hmm. And each of these claims, they can be one, two. I have seen one claim that only says, we claim an automobile. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a, old, <laughs> that's a really old patent from the... <laughs> from the, the beginning of the 20th century, okay? But <laughs> the, those exist. I have also seen one paper from 1910 in Sweden, which claims a puzzle. So how to do a wood puzzle. Mm -hmm. So there is very interesting patent, <laughs> I must say. But uh, what, what you do is you take this claim and you need to find if there is any type of information about this claim that could say that this is already published because if it is you cannot patent your uh, invention as you have formulated you can reformulate it and then patent it but if there is something that says no this already exists that means that the, cl uh, the claims is not valid to be patent mm -hmm. um, so what I took is actually this claims sentences and then we think about sentences like yeah it's probably 20 words or 30 words maximum no a claim sentence is in average 70 mm -hmm. so it's more or less a paragraph which and here we call i will pick up on that where we come to the problem of nlp and and also text mining the challenges mm -hmm. but just for now we will say it, it's 70 uh, uh, 70 word long and so I took the entire segment and said, okay, find me the most similar paragraph which could say that this already exists. Mm -hmm. And we had in Turin, we run several um, campaigns and challenges from 2009 to 2013, where we did different uh Pass, what we call patent retrieval challenges. And in 2012 and 2013, we did paragraph retrieval, or we call it passage retrieval, actually not only finding the document that would relevant, but also the paragraph that would say that this claim already exists or this is relevant to, it, uh, to, to this claim. Mm -hmm. So, um, and if you have 70 words long sentence you need to pick out which ones is important and if we come back to the when this this was done manually these were experts librarians that has been trained for years to pick out what is relevant for this domain and if you're a librarian uh like a subject librarian you first studied the topic that you were interested in. So you studied medicine, you studied computer science, and then on top of that, you did a master degree in information and library science. Mm -hmm. So that was, this is how you are ex a subject librarian. You need to have at least 60 credits or old school credits. I think it's now 60 would actually be two years now. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yes. Two or it's three years. <laughs> I'm not sure because it's always, I did it back in 2000. Four, mm -hmm. so it's a whole. <laughs> we had the old schema where you only had twenty credits per per semester, and now I think it's thirty. I'm not sure how it is right now, Things but anyway, yes, yeah. yeah, it changed all the time. So, uh, but you really needed to have more or less a bachelor degree or at least uh, two years of a subject, and then you could actually go on and becoming a librarian, mm -hmm. and. So you had a lot of expert knowledge to pick out what was important. Mm -hmm. And now 
we don't have that. Now we are trying to take this expert knowledge and see if we can do it with computer, if we can train computer to be able to pick out what is important in here and then take the words that we picked out and see if we can retrieve the most relevant paragraph for just that uh, section or that claim. And um, I had the state of art to in this passage retrieval for patent from 2016 to actually today, I saw one publication just published in May 2021 mm -hmm. where they have come up to more or less the same standard as me for my statistical statistic method. So the statistic mm -hmm. method is only statistically driven, no natural language processing, no parsing, no shunking, no part of speech tagging, just counting, crunching word in different ways. But actually, this is exactly something that I wanted to talk with you and ask you about, because we have talked about this as well off mic. And as you started out describing um, the different let's say, elements of text mining when you were describing exactly this this um, extracting of information and this question answering systems. I was thinking about a lot what is very hyped at the moment with NLP, which are chatbots and where you do like sentiment um, classification, for example, of sentences. And, and what I find very interesting is that um, all those um, things that you can find when you start out as a not, not having the linguistic background, not being a domain expert in this is that, that when you search the web, let's say naively, you, you find that nowadays with, let's say, uh, contextual word embeddings based on bird or kind of transformers, you can really do something like um, sentence embeddings. And then you can simply take those sentence embeddings, you, you have a model trained, uh, pre-trained model, you adapt it, let's say, the domain, and then you could maybe do something Thing, as you described to the sentence similarity measures uh, with with this uh, with these models and they supposedly have good results but you as we talked of Mike right you said that um, the elements that you mentioned before this this, this text processing like the, um, part of speech and uh, all the other things that have been developed as you mentioned already since the 50s and 60s that made that that are let's say the knowledge a prior knowledge that you have about what language actually is and what are what what is this what uh, how to extract semantic uh, uh, information out of language um so so for me it's a bit the question how come this two approaches and and when does when does it actually really work when is it enough to say that you have like um this like data driven um, solutions where you have contextualized embeddings and when do they fail and you exactly need um systems like the one that you have been developing and have been advancing with the artificial researchers where you have to do this um this kind of um text processing um, and information extraction that then only gives you the quality and the possibility to, to de develop um, question answering system and search systems. Yay. Okay. So um, I would say if you have a good Uh, corpus, uh, which is a text collection, you can say that, uh, and usually you say that a corpus has some kind of enhancement when it, it goes from a text collection to a corpus, it usually have some kind of a markup. Uh, it could be that this is a document, it has a label which uh, domain it belongs to, if it belongs to computer science or uh, library science and so forth. Um, But uh, when you have a representative corpus and you want to train um, 
a task with embeddings, I would say it works quite well when it's in the mainstream media. So the mainstream media is the newspaper. It can be um, uh, even Twitter's news feeds, but in these areas. Mm -hmm. But you have actually sampled the data so it becomes representative representative for the task you want to do then is when it works and also it, the language that is in this corpus uh, needs to follow a certain pattern and i will give you an example where i first encounter where the swedish language didn't follow the pa pattern that it should have been following mm -hmm. so if we know that swedish and german is actually germanic languages and we have something called compounding in Swedish, where we do orthographical compounding, which is also common in German. There can be very lengthy word, as we know. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to not uh, repeat too much when you're talking, you don't say this lengthy word. You just re uh, refer to the end of uh, a word in, uh, of the compound instead. Can and you give an example for, for all this? Yes. So, if you let us see, uh, this is English, and English is also a Germanic language, but they don't have the orthographical compound. They have the noun phrases instead. Mm -hmm. Actually, there is an excellent book on the importance of the English noun phrase, which I think everyone should read if you're interested in linguistics. I, I, I can anyway. make sure that it will be included in the references. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, so if we just imagine. Imagine that you have the word indexing algorithm, and that's joined together now. And when I say the index algorithm is good for retrieval, the algorithm do following steps. You know that I'm referring the algorithm is the indexing algorithm, but I'm just using the end of that mm -hmm. compound. And this is called... Um, Ellipsis. It's an ellipsis function where you don't mention everything. You just mention what's the, the, the central of that word. It's also when you have uh, pronouns, for example, he, she. So mm -hmm. you introduce that John went home and had a shower and then he took went to bed, for example. You know that I introduced John and then I say he, he. Mm -hmm. And we all know that it's about John. And not any he in the world, but it's actually John that is actually taking a shower and then go to bed. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a called a lipstick function or an anaphoric function. And this is what you can use when you want to decompound um, um, a uh, decompound uh, certain words in Swedish and German. So you can use this to say, okay, because what, what you have with compounds is that you can actually, you can say the indexing algorithm, but you can also say indexing device algorithm and think that the indexing device algorithm is then joined together. So you can mm -hmm. combine it in different ways. That's called productive compounding, which is very common in German and Swedish because that's how we generate new words. And then everyone can come up with their own compound when it comes to these new words formation. So you need in, informa in the information retrieval setting and also information exception setting, split this up to match substring of these ones. Mm -hmm. And what I did in my master thesis uh, at um, 
Stockholm University, and I worked then with the Swedish Patent Office, was to split these type of complex technical compound in Swedish using this ellipsis function. So I looked at, okay, here is a, a paragraph of text. I identify the compound lengthy word, and they have also certain interfix, uh, which is uh, bound morphemes that mark that this is uh, most likely a compound. And then I try to actually see which one is the important part of this compound, which is the main word. Is it the algorithm or is it the index or is it in the between the device? by looking at how they were referring to it in as an anaphoric or ellipsis mm -hmm. function. And what I noticed, I did this first on a balanced corpora, the Stockholm Umeå corpora. And, and I tried this on linguists to see what's the most important word in here. And they always picked out the, uh, the compounds, the noun compounds. Those was the most important ones. And then I actually split it up to see if I could get a better retrieval. And this is what I did in, uh, for my bachelor degree in computational linguistic. And then I decided, okay, that was uh, a balanced corpora, a representative corpora. Mm -hmm. Because shortly, what is a balanced corpora or what's the contrasting to an unbalanced corpora? Or... Okay, so a balanced corpora is that you sample it out to represent the language as a, as a total. Mm -hmm. So it's, it contains newspaper, it contains conversations, it contains uh, different type of dialogues, it contains also um, scientific publication. Uh, I also think it contains, it depends what area you're looking for, but it also contains like um, theses, like theses from students, and they, compo they compose it in different uh, uh, domains, so different subject fields and also different genres. So you have this genre newspaper, you have, uh, you have patent, you have legal text, you have all these different genres, and these Shangas can have different topics. The topic can be agriculture, computer science, sports, uh, all of these. So mm -hmm. what a balanced corpus is to take this and try to sample the representativeness of the language to show in order to uh, see how words are used in the common language. Mm -hmm. And what's the common words and what's not the common words in a certain language? What is the grammatic? What is grammatical com common things that are used and what is not common uh, common to use? That's mo mostly corpus linguistic, mm -hmm. and of course, um, a balanced corpus is, is have this representativeness. Usually, it also have part of speech tagging. So, what's a marked out what's a noun, what's a verb, what's a preposition and so forth. And also how these, how they are structured on a higher level. So we then calling the verb phrases, the noun phrases, and then we go to an upper level, which is mm -hmm. the constituent information where you have the clauses, how the clauses are joined together. And then we go up to the highest level, which is actually the tree structure. I think if you have gone to the core Uh, core NLP um, from Stanford, you can uh, they can do all these tree structure where you see there is a tree how uh, certain words are interlinked and what they have different labels. 
I can remember that from the from the basic NLP courses that I took back when exactly when when where there were this this decomposition as you said of a sentence in the, into different sub elements and how they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's quite difficult to describe it just in words, but I hope. Uh, we got the message through that there has different hierarchies in in languages and they are on syntax level they have, are on morphology level they mm-hmm. are on different uh, stages okay so um anyway so that's a representative corpus they have all this element in order to make observation about the lang- uh, about a language in in mm-hmm. total or what the task it is for so if we we take the famous Pen Tree Bank, it was mm-hmm. done for actually training NLP tools. So the representativeness there was to train NLP tools in order to extract information from there. And that corpus is actually the most used today also. And it's, mm-hmm. it has different la- layers right now. It also have discourse layer where you say this paragraph is connected to that paragraph and label how they are connected and so forth. Um, so, so we are then jumping back to, let's see here, uh, how to use these uh, tools. <laughs> exactly. And, right. and at that point, as you already mentioned, um, you said like the, the let's say the dom- domain agnostic approaches where you have end-to-end uh, deep learning models they work well on for like general text and general and mm-hmm. like for example like, imagine in part you 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 talk about systems like the google search or similar um but you but you said when we talk about more dim, domain specific information extraction retrieval systems then in those um you need um you need to be able to uh, do exactly this uh, this noun decomposition or this this decomposition of, of mm-hmm. Of, of word combinations into their their the element their core elements so that you can perform a, a question answering and, and information search to understand this yes correctly. yes so uh, so we go back to the compounding what I then observed so I did my bachelor thesis on an information retrieval system using a balanced corpus of Swedish and then I said okay this is really uh, we need to remember this is back in 2001 2001-2002 and then I said this is really cool and I will develop a tool for patent because I had actually a cousin that were working at the PRV that's uh, as a Swedish patent office and she told me a bit about how to work with how you search in patent and the what the problem was there so I said I'm going to use the new tools and now we're going to think back that this is now 2003 2002 so Mm -hmm. at that time the vector space model was really hype and the BM25 was also really hype but I decided for the vector space model because I used it in my bachelor so I contacted the Swedish patent office and said hey guys I have a really cool thing that I want to do and uh, I have shown that this uh, proof of concept in my bachelor thesis that I can do this I have this excellent algorithm to decompound uh, Swedish technical words mm-hmm. and I want to apply it on on patent so I actually got, this was really funny, I got a, a, a cartridge, an old cartridge from a frame computer, mm-hmm. which I had to send down to Volvo in Gothenburg in order to get extracted. And then it found out that it wasn't ASCII, and most NLP tools work on ASCII and not on ABCD, which is the IBM encoding. So I actually had an IBM encoding, and 
if you know about encoding, EBCD has actually eight different versions and they weren't sure which one it was. Mm -hmm. So I spend, I think I spend many of my summers actually just trying to extract the text from there because it was a mixture of images and Swedish patent claims. So there was a lot of work before I actually could start doing my NLP stuff as my parsing, using a part of speech tag, using a chunker, using a dependency parser, mm -hmm. all of these ones that I needed to do in order to use my algorithm. And <laughs> so it took me a while. And when I then started applying my technology, my algorithm, which I found out, I found out that this uh, elliptic function was weakened. The strength in this, the indexing algorithm, the algorithm didn't occur. Mm -hmm. So they were repeating the word indexing algorithm all the time in a claim. So I couldn't use that function which was so famous, and it comes back to uh, from beginning when we talked about George Kingsley Sid. He has said the least effort. Language is all about the least effort. And that's why we actually are using the indexing algorithm and then referring to the algorithm. And that functionality, which was so strong, did not occur in this text genre. And that got me really excited. So I thought, mm -hmm. this is really cool. It actually doesn't follow the general opinion of how a language should work. Mm -hmm. And that that got me very interested in why is this so? And why did why what 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 does this do for the algorithm when it doesn't follow uh, the pattern that they should be following? They don't follow the rules that should be there or what we presumed should be there, at least, let's say like that, because, I mean, of course, they were grammatical correct, so they do follow the rules. It was just that they were extremely repetitive, and that was the problem, mm -hmm. because our algorithm that we had developed to that time actually was based upon that you don't repeat words too frequently. And this is where you have in patent. Everything is repeated over, all over many more times than what is ad adapted for these existing algorithms. And now I'm talking about the algorithm that just doing uh, frequency counting. So you're talking term mm -hmm. frequency, document frequency, inversive document frequency. So these type of counting, they have a certain pattern. They should follow the zip curve. And then Loon came in with another uh, opinion saying that, okay, if you take the zip curve, which we know is you have a high on the, let's say, left-hand side, you have a high peak there where the preposition and so forth is, and then you have like a tail, a, a mm -hmm. dropping tail. And in the middle, you have the, um, you have the normal distribution curve, which take away the most frequent word and the most unfrequent word, because you say that most frequent word would be preposition. Those are not interesting. And the most frequent, uh, the most unfrequent word will be words that people don't know about. So they are not interested either. Mm -hmm. So you just need in a retrieval system cover the ones that are in the middle, in the normal distribution curve. This was his claim in, I think it was, he came up with that in 1957 Mm -hmm. or 56. I'm, I'm not sure when he published because he published a lot of uh, papers, mm -hmm. but we can, I, I can give you the reference to his, his, uh, there is a really a, a collection where they've taken all his publication into a book, which is a really interesting book to read. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll get that as a reference. And 
at that time, we back in 2001, we didn't have the embeddings in neural networks. Even if I, I started neural networks together with my father in 1995, but then we only had two layers. So there were no complexity there. And it was in the semiconductor industry because that's what he where he was working at that time. So... Uh, <clears throat> So I had introducing I had some uh, introduction to neural network in 1995, where we looked at like signal systems and things mm -hmm. like that that was used for. And uh, but for text we worked with just crunching numbers as a frequency, and this type of theme that it's just a normal distribution that is important. But when I took this and said, okay, this is the hypothesis we have about these algorithms. But if I put this on patent, which does, does not follow these, uh, this type of distribution, what happened? Uh, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that was actually what I proven with my elliptic function that they don't follow the pattern. And then I started looking into that in more details and found out that the TF-IDF did not either work that well, because actually the most on the the unfrequent word was really, really important. So you needed to take care of them and make sure that they were pushed up. And also the very frequent word, like uh, bus lot card. Bus occur in several contacts, contexts such as uh, you have transportation and you have semiconductor. Mm -hmm. And now we're coming to the interesting where you're talking about the embedding. So, okay, you know that word uh, uh, in I know we're talking now about English. So even if English and Swedish and German is all Germanic languages, along with Dutch and also Norwegian and Danish, Icelandic too. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they are very different, even if they are following certain grammatical pattern and certain morphology. But English is, though, a bit more Latin because they have been influenced by Latin and, and Fran French. So, uh, so. The pattern of uh, <laughs> the known phrases, uh, the, the compounds in English is then, if you say bus lot curd, uh, double weaker bus, the word bus will occur very frequently, very frequently, and will be pushed up because it has two different meanings in different contexts. So in double vehicle bus, it, uh, it, it's uh, some kind of transportation, mm -hmm. but in bus lot curd, it's actually is a semiconductor device, you can say. Mm -hmm. So that means that if you, they get too frequently and you cannot ignore them, you cannot do a, like a, say a, a stop word list that says, if you're too frequent, we are not interested in you because these are really important in the context where they occur in the compound, the noun compound of English. And that is where you, where we cannot always use the embeddings because it actually looks at the frequency. It takes account to the frequency of the semantic, semantic vectors and count mm -hmm. these vectors. And if it's too unfrequent, it will be ignored. And if it's, uh, so then it actually, the meaning of the word bus will be only joined to one type of meaning. And in patent, we concluded that the meaning of the word bus will only be referred to associative terms such as memory, register, address. Mm -hmm. Nothing about transportation. And I can give you a value of, uh, of that. So the value of um, register and memory for a word to vec, uh, uh, word -to -vec model done on patent mm -hmm. is 
0.7, 0.8, and usually we say 0.6, then it's a, uh, it's a threshold for being some kind of similarity. 0.9 means that it's a word form. So bus would be then buses or uh, and all of the plural endels, uh, mm -hmm. plural endings and so forth. But if you want to look how similar are bus and transportation in a patent collection, it will be 0.002. Mm -hmm. That means you will not find it. It's nowhere in the threshold where you're looking for. So there you have an unbalance because there are so many publications on semiconductor industry, but very little on the transportation. So the meaning of the context when busts occur in the context of transportation disappears. And that is one of the risks you have with word embeddings. The BERT system is, uh, so the new, uh, more advanced uh, mm -hmm. system. The contextualized embeddings. Yeah, they have a bit better. So they can actually handle this in a much better way. So, so we are progressing here. But, and one of the things they are working on is the substring function. However, when I apply BERT uh, on patent, and I try it out with, uh, and look how they act on different substrings, I will uh, give you an example here, mm -hmm. even if it's not so relevant for the patent. But if you have the word lorry and berry, mm -hmm. You know that RRY exists in both of these uh, 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 gotcha. words, but they have no semantic meaning. There is no, have, it just happened to be the same. Could be the least effort. We decided just to have the least effort there. Or it, it has no bearing of the semantic meaning. And Using this substring when we don't define what bearing it should have, what the substrings are, then berry will have a similarity of a point uh, if you're using the contextual. Even if you put it in a uh, in a sentence, mm -hmm. the it will be so prone to the berry the RRY, and especially if you do a short uh, short comparison, just uh, like five six words then it will have a similarity of 0.7, which is not good. Mm -hmm. So I understand it here, the syntactic, syntactic similarity between these two words translates too much to a semantic similarity in, in the bird embeddings. Yeah. yeah, so the substring influences the semantic, uh, semantic similarities too much. So mm -hmm. you need to punish the, the substring function in bird. Because it doesn't, it, it just look, you, it's uh, when we come back to the conversation we had that you give it what you give, the data you give it, it's what it will learn on. And if you don't balance and design the data correctly, it will learn incorrect things. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Mostly it will learn the correct things because you have so, a certain type of normal distribution, but for certain things, it will learn uh, incorrect. So it actually see, looks into the substrings and say, okay, RRY is a substring of Barry and Laurie, and and that is too influenced. So you actually need to put in a pun, uh, like a penalize these type of substrings when they are not relevant. And relevance in in language, if we come back to the linguistic and the grammar, is actually looking at different uh, the meaning of a word. So a word is has a root which is mm -hmm. called root morpheme. So if you have the word cat, 
and if you have then you say the plural the cats, the S in the end of the cat is a bound morpheme. So mm -hmm. a bound morpheme means that it's a grammatical morpheme but that says it's a plural all of a cat, so more than one cat. And these type of function are the substring that you should be looking for, not the randomly happen to be overlapping, even if I, I, I would, uh, don't uh, take me to court on that, but I would say RRY in Barry and Laurie is actually random. Mm -hmm. it, it just happened to be there. But if you give the algorithm to train on these things, it will notice this pattern because it's actually all about noticing patterns and substring patterns. And if you don't tell it what is the most important part of the substrings, then it will learn regardless overlaps. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but then shortly, maybe looking at the time, maybe we can fast forward a bit and talk about your the artificial artificial researcher, um, and the, your your company, and 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 maybe you can describe a bit. Um, as you sent me a wonderful presentation about um about your work you're doing, maybe you can describe a bit um how how you make use. Of, of, of the different things that you, that the processes to extract the relevant information from the words and the relevant information from the text that's that let's say is a, a simple application of a, a normal embeddings model um, cannot give you in your system and how um, how this then helps to 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 produce the quality and um, the results that you want to achieve yes so uh, what we do is that we take uh Uh, we take a, also a large collection and we had developed certain models and all of these models is in uh, like Docker images. So we can swap it out. When we have a better model, we swap it out. And we have actually developed our infrastructure on a cloud platform. In this case, we are using the Google platform. And for us, the Kubernetes cluster is quite important because this gives us, if it's downtime, we get the information about it and we can swap out. And when it's up and running again, it's It's a really good uh, solution for us. So what we do is that we have this pipeline where we take, uh, we take a collection of documents, which can be PDFs or it can be XML, some kind of text readable uh, document. So it can't be PDF that are images that they, because then we go into the OCR problem, mm -hmm. which I have worked with in the past too, but, but that, that's, too far away. So we need to work with some kind of text readable, machine readable, which we can convert in. in. And then uh, we sample this data. If we are going to decide that we are going to do a sample module where we are going to have a, a good distribution, we sample the data based on the metadata. Mm -hmm. So we look at different layers to see how we can sample it to represent the task that we want. Or uh, so if the task is to actually get, generate a, a BERT model to train to a client, then we sample the data in a special way. And uh, if we are going to generate an index and also relate the terms in that index, so you have suggestion how to search in this index to know which terms are related to each other or not, Uh, then we take the entire data collection. Mm -hmm. We go through our process, which is first at harmonization and text normalization. That's where you handle the acronyms, you handle different type of uh, N, 
Um, so you know that words uh, in the end, uh, a word can be split with a hyphenation because of new line feed, which mm -hmm. you need to actually correct. Otherwise, you get uh, a split where it has no split. You get words that aren't, aren't words, actually. Mm -hmm. So you need to handle all of this stuff. And then when that is handled, we throw it through a chunker, uh, a NLP tool, which I modified. So I actually use different ones. I've used uh, the NLP toolkit from Python, but I also used the Stanford and try different solutions to see. And then I needed to post-modify it. And for patent in English, it's very important with the ing form. So doing, coating, floating, all of these ones are more nouns than they are uh, verbs. Mm -hmm. So you need to handle that. And these type of tools have a ten because they were trained on the pen tree bank, they think that the participle is more verb phrases than they are noun phrases. But in patent, they are only nouns, very rarely verbs mm -hmm. or participle worked in a verb phrase. So we go through this process. We also have gazetteer, which our client can provide us, or we take what we have uh, uh, like. Um, link in open data and use those as gazetteers to identify certain key elements that we are looking for. And then we do a bootstrapping that goes, we do it like three or four times to make sure that we have enough data. And we also use here, it's why we are using NLP. Here's why it's very important to use NLP. We look at the pattern. So there is a certain pattern where you can detect synonyms or hyponym and hyponym. So broad terms and specific terms. Mm -hmm. And that comes from Martha Hurst, which is like um, uh, domestic pets such as cats and dogs. You know that uh, cats and dogs are domestic pets. So that is, uh, we we look at those patterns and those these ones are then candidates. And if they are also in the gazetteer, we say that, okay, they are also having a certain technical feature, which are important for this domain we are looking for. And then we use the compute, uh, computation semantic to actually compute, are they actually true relations? Do they have a certain similarity? And then we have different threshold, depending on how we have worked with our balanced vertical uh, models. Mm -hmm. We say, yes, they are true. And then they are then feeded into ontology where we have a big graph. We can actually put that on onto the in the reference list where you can try this alpha graph that graph search tool that we have produced. That and then interesting for the yeah. <laughs> uh, and and so we create these ontologies where we say that there has there is uh, phrases and words that have certain relationships. Uh, so you can get like a uh, suggestion of words that you can use to s combine your search query with. So you don't need to come up with yourself. You you just have one word, the disease, and then you get represent. Then you can get inflammatory disease that you can get different example of those. Mm -hmm. And then we produce this ontology and. Uh, the, the the next step, we also produce an index. And here is the important thing. We just don't produce a document index. We produce a paragraph index. So when you do the search with your what you find in the ontology, and then we do the automatic query formulation, and you can execute your search into the paragraph retrieval. And you get then suggestion on the paragraphs that are most relevant for your question. Mm -hmm. So you get exactly to where you want to go. And of course, now I just gave the example that uh, hyponym and hyponym relations, that is actually broad terms and specific terms, but we can do this with 
different types. So we did one work to in the um, EOS, European Open Science Cloud. <laughs> Let's see if I got it right. <laughs> uh, and uh, we identify data set names. Uh, so we could identify when in a scientific publication where they had a, uh, referring to a data set, which is quite important for when you're doing NLP, for example, that you want to try out different uh, algorithms on different data collections. So you want to identify who have talked about this data set, how can I get hold of this data set? So we have a tool that actually identify data sets and then link it to different articles that are relevant for this data set. So you can actually if you just search, I want to have something on text mining, referring to inference or mm -hmm. language understanding. Then we get suggestion of these are the data set and these are the publications that this data set is in. And also here's the GitHub where you can actually get hold of it. Or here's the Senodo where you can get hold of the data set. So this is something, a, a work in progress. We did the first feasibly feasibility study of that. And here we used BERT actually. Mm -hmm. Only BERT and trained that and it was quite successful. So you can do these type of relations with different things, not just a lexical semantic relation, which is hyponym and hyponym, synonyms and so forth. And yeah, so that's the process. And we can now process, I think the last time we did a test run was thousand uh, documents average around 50 pages long mm -hmm. uh, in one uh, on one node in one hour so so it's quite a, a speedy process and we can scale it up to around 50 to 100 nodes in the in the cloud system we have right now so we can actually quite process it quite quick mm -hmm. um yeah that, Interesting. That's what we do. <laughs> and um, so I saw already on, on the slides as well that you, that you, so the system, if I understood this correctly, is used, for example, at the technical university, at the library there, and, and, and by several other customers to understand this correctly. So the uh, the system is uh, starting to get deployed at the technical uh, university library. Mm -hmm. uh, we also work with uh, uh, um, PhD students that that are doing a summary algorithm uh, summary uh, module there. So she takes a summary of a paper. So instead of reading the entire paper, you actually just look at the part of the summary. And this summary paper is really targeting. What did the user claim they did? Also the author, what did they claim they did? What was the method they used? What was the result and what was the outcome? So what was the conclusion? So mm -hmm. a really condensed summary. And this is what we are going to deploy and test on user in, in autumn. Um, so it will be a smaller. And then we have worked with um, uh, other clients, uh, we got two grants from uh, from the from the AOS, and then we also uh, have worked with Fitzcarlsruhe, uh, which has been one of our test clients. So they are testing our different system, and that's of course for patent and scientific literature. And we were focusing on open access uh, data sets because mm -hmm. this is cr extremely important. Because if you do a patent. If it's anywhere published, you can then your paper, then your patent can actually be 
our position again. So it mm -hmm. can come up that if you have, if you haven't done a good search and someone find a paper from 1981, which is partly relevant, that can be that your uh, your patent is not uh, is not valid. So therefore, we focus on the open access part of patent because there it's if you go to the commercial um, information provided at Elsevier and 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 Springer, there you have the data and you can search in that. But the open access is much broader. There, there can be one page where they publish some publication or proceedings. And then at some other web page, they publish something else. So you need to have an umbrella to actually have all these publication and search in one place. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's really difficult to find. And, and that's uh, what we work with, the open access scholar publications. Yes. How is it actually um, thinking um, about your system? How how do the customers actually can really query the system? So do they need some domain specific language for this, or as I said, or can they is this a type of free text system that that, that people can let's like, say write the as you said uh, maybe a short description of what they're looking for in 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 natural language? So we it actually can be two things. Here we have that you can use this graph search where we actually you search you write a word and then you see, and you then define which domain you're interested in. If you're interested in agriculture, you get the uh, words that are associated with that word in the agriculture area. And then you can then pick out which word you're interested in and say uh, do a query and we do an automatic query formulation. That's one way. And you can also decide that uh, I'm just interested in this segment in a text and then copy paste it in to our passage retrieval and then execute the query. And the automatic query formulation, we then turn it, identify which words are important in there. Where we come back to where I worked with the, the, the claims in my PhD, that's we use the same mechanism here to actually identify what's important in that segment that you just uh, paste into mm -hmm. to this uh, text box. You can also do a, a complex Boolean query where you do use and or and also proxon proxonomies that this word should be within the range of five words or so forth. Uh, so these are the different, the natural language that you ask for. I would like to know something about this. Um, that is something we're working on. And there is where I actually think BERT can do a very good job. But it is a bit of a problem with them because uh, depending on how you train the BERT, so if you train on how frequently a certain word, a certain uh, question, the question is uh, is like, uh, and then when you have the clicks for this, uh, so if if, so let's let me put it like this: If you have a, a frequent question that many people are asking, then the algorithm is usually trained upon what most people are clicking on, what was the most relevant, which actually makes sense because if you have this question and if you and everyone clicks on just this link, they should be relevant even for the other ones. However, now we're coming back to the substring problem. Mm -hmm. If there would be so that your question is very similar to a question, which actually is, there is a certain distinction difference. It can be an and or a not something. I would like to know so not about something instead of I would like to know something. Mm -hmm. This, this uh, negation, if that is not recognized, 
you will actually get to know everything about something that you were not looking for. And that is one of the problems that you really need to have this logic in there, the yeah. logic inference. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, and maybe one other aspect of, of as, as you touched upon it yourself, talking about, let's say, how fast your system is in processing um, documents or ingesting those documents, how much of a human labor is actually involved in integrating documents and, and uh, adding or like extending um, whatever system you already have, including maybe new kind of, 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 of branches. As you, for example, mentioned, you have agriculture there, maybe you have some kind of a library and then you get suddenly had computer science books, content patterns and, and things. So uh, right now we are not, uh, uh, so there is, a, if we go into a new domain, we did a, a cooking recipe domain for Swedish for a while back, it was uh, seeing uh, uh, if we could actually suggest different type of uh, food substance in uh, when ingredients, if you have an allergy and you couldn't eat white, uh, you can't have white flour, what other things can you use instead? Can you do, can you use some kind of uh, almond flour and have that in your, in your baking instead? So, uh, so that takes a bit of a more process. I would say then we need to look locate where which resources we can use but we try to minimize the manual annotation because that's cost and it takes time i would usually say a manual annotation to get it good you need to do three uh see three revision which is at least three months mm -hmm. so then it becomes also quite expensive so we really try to see what tools are out there what can we use and how can we minimize the man manual labor but of course finding these tools and testing them out, testing the models do take time. So I would say it takes around a month to actually find some kind of good uh, supplement or something that can actually aid annotator if you need to have manual annotators. Mm -hmm. So uh, always working with uh, some kind of CMO annotation before you take the manual annotator. Um, but in our system for the standard collection we have now, we don't have a manual uh, we don't have uh, any manual uh, annotation or curation. We take the text, mm -hmm. we download the text or upload the text, through, go through the process. Of course, it's a monitoring because, of course, you need to monitor, see that it doesn't run out of memory and certain things. Mm -hmm. And then we do our uh, evaluation checks in the end. If the clients want to have a better curated level, of course, we introduce a manual annotation. So we have a, a pool of linguists that do the manual annotation. And then we generate uh, Docker images with ontology, Docker images with uh, uh, solar indexes, and then it's actually ready for use. So okay. then we can set it up in a cloud solution for them on Google, or we can host it in our big uh, Kubernetes cluster, or they can get it on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, on their own premises and, and run, uh, run it offline. And then when we have our improvement, then we just give them the new Docker image and say, okay, here's the new Docker image where we have corrected some of, uh, some of the noisy candidates, for example, in the ontology, because it's an um, automatically generated ontology with no human interference or curation will have some noise. That, that's course, for sure. Of course. So for example, three samples or things like that. But but then maybe two things that come to my mind. Um, so on one side, how much your system actually 
depends on the amount of data that the customer that can provide for the idea. So is does does the let's say if I only have like start out with having like one hundred documents, um, um, then the search that I can perform uh, on those documents, let's say, do you expect the the quality of 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 the results to be similar to then if you would have one million documents, or do it, is it like for from your respect is something like a fresher that you say okay um, for, for as you said right your models in many ways have been pre-trained on like um on, on on tree bank and other systems so they know something about the language and and domain but then you still have the specific content of of, of the customer wants to make use so i would imagine that there is some kind of threshold where the system needs enough of input data let's say that it can really perform to a certain level Yes, so I would say that it depends on the task. So uh, when we worked with the uh, recipe, cooking recipe, uh, we could actually work with seven uh, thousand five uh, cooking recipes and actually create an alpha a demo for, for that to see that this was actually doable. If you want to have ontology uh, and an index, I would say the smallest collection we have worked with was around. Uh, 10, uh, 100,000. So you really need to have a uh, 100,000 document if you want to have a complete uh, with a good uh, with good candidates uh, mm -hmm. of, of, of relations and an index. If you have a smaller collection, let's say that you only have 100 or 1,000, we can work on that also. But then we need to use our uh, already existing ontologies to enhance those ones because we won't be able to extract so many candidates from that. So we actually need to take our ontologies that we have, and we have around 5,000 5, 500,000 relationship, depending on, on which domain, which we then can enhance that so we can see that, okay, these words are related here and we have that in our already existing collection so we can compute, is that also applicable on this domain? So we can enhance it with what we already have. Extracting from 100, I would say, in best case scenarios, you get, uh, yeah, you get like 3,000, good candidates out mm -hmm. with this uh, lexical syntactic patent, uh, which Marta Hurst had, and increasing that with uh, some semantic and cleaning, you get 2,000, which would be good candidates. So you lose actually 1,000 in, uh, in just that they are noise. Mm -hmm. um, and that's too little. I would say an ontology of 3,000 is too little when you want to use this automatical uh, as query expansion terms. So then we need to enhance it. Look, what do we have in our library already, which we can enhance this index with. So, but 100, I would say is a threshold. 50 documents, then it becomes too little. Mm -hmm. But so I would say 100 is a threshold, but then we actually need to use our library, already existing library, and then it needs to match our library that mm -hmm. we have covered this. And oh, usually we have, we have the entire science and patent bit of lesser about social science. We want to work on that. So social science, human science, that's something that we would like to work on more to get more of ontologies in those areas. Mm -hmm. I understand. But then maybe two more things um, that, that as well that I wanted to ask you about your system. And uh, as you already talked about updates or changes, um, let's see, um, do I understand this correctly that this is not a kind of system that currently supports streaming of data so that you can continuously uh, integrate new documents into the system or does it? Uh, so that 
And that is, uh, we are working on that part for our standard collection. So for patent and also for our open access collections, we are working on that part to actually get new feed, uh, not every day, but a monthly to have a monthly update of indexes. That's what we're working on. But uh, since we're also doing ontologies, if we, depending on much feed you get in, if you only get 1,000 in, you don't get so much new uh, terms to hook on. Mm -hmm. So that is, this is a bit of a, okay, how much uh, new features do you get? You, of course, you get a new feature for the index, but you don't get new feature for the ontology so much. So we are looking at, should we only run it to the index and make sure that we have an up-to-date index, but the ontology is just run once a month to actually get sure. enough data because every sense, day, yeah. okay, though there should be said, Every second, every second second, a new pub a scientific publication is published somewhere in the world. So, but it's to get hold of those <laughs> publications that is probably the problem. So we have our own provider where we work with the data. So I would say monthly update is a most plausible because to get enough uh, new candidates and also get enough uh, to increase the index. Mm -hmm. There is also one reason why one actually went through assigned vocabulary because it was always this uh, coverage. You weren't doing, you didn't get enough coverage because you didn't have time to actually do all the indexing with the new feedings, uh, new documents that came in. So the ontologies was never up to date. Mm -hmm. But we have seen on ontology on monthly basis is actually coming up to date because it needs to follow the the feed uh, streaming of the new publication so every month i would say is you can generate new good candidates in ontology mm -hmm. i understand yes. i understand and maybe one thing that you already touched upon uh, like um like changes uh, or let's say uh, improvements there so my question is how does your system actually or can your system handle feedback and uh, how do you how, how is feedback by people that are searching or using or searching a system is integrated into in, into into for example the ontology or the index or your system in general? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So what we do here is that we work with universities. So because I don't want to take feedback, uh, I see feedback as something that uh, people supply us uh, so if you search on our system you uh, there is certain uh, we we of course uh, we don't look at the who search we don't take any gdpr information we look at what did you search upon what did you collect but we don't look at who how many how many did this search on this question we rather look at what was the word used in the search and what was collected and what are the terms that are significant for this domain. So we try to feed into our algorithm the significance of the words that were used rather than actually saying what was generally mostly clicked upon. So we, we try to level how well the question was formulated. Mm -hmm. And see uh, if it was a. Uh, and here we actually work with universities. So there are university students uh, on bachelor and PhD level. They have a certain knowledge in their domain. So we know that these people would have some domain knowledge, and therefore we can actually model these uh, type of give uh, a query a confidence how well it is compared to our 
control uh, control standard where we know these were these certain terms are very important for this domain. So we do integrate the feedback, but we don't integrate on how many did search on this or or that and then uh, train the algorithm on the popularity. Mm-hmm. We turn we train the algorithm on the significance of the word used and what was picked mm-hmm. and how they uh, fit into the domain. Uh, so that's a different way to actually approach it. And we, we don't care who is doing the search actually when we have it uh, up and running for public, it's only what you search, not where you, we don't we don't collect cookies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We we really try to avoid things like that and just see what are the interests and compare it to our control uh, vocabulary or our control mechanism to see. Oh, okay, this uh, wording has this confidence in this domain. Then we can assess how much we can give it in the feedback loop. So we do feedback loops, mm-hmm. but it's based upon the termhoodness of the words that are used in the query. Okay, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Um, looking at uh, at the clock, actually, um, this is by far the the longest interview that you had with it on the on on the podcast, which is very nice. Um, but um, so we would slowly would like to move it towards toward the end. Actually, there would be many different things that I have, that came up for me during preparing this interview that were interesting. But maybe two things stand out for me, which I found very nice and 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 independent of your particular system or or your, your, your work that you've done with the artificial researchers, there were two things that, that, that I wanted to ask you, which I found maybe um, I wanted to, to have your uh, opinion on it uh, with your background. And um, so one of them um, was actually about at, at adversarial examples in the space of NLP. So that's something that, that um, I recently came across through... through uh, listening to another podcast, the, the Machine Learning Street Talk podcast, that um, I know adversarial examples from the from the image domain where this has been happening a lot, uh, where you do image classification uh, of of things, and there you can do adversarial examples, so you can manipulate images that you change, for example, um, the the classification of that image. So you can, have, and those manipulations are non visible in most cases um, for humans because they they operate. In in an area where they say are non-robust features um, in the adversarial domain, and um, I was, uh, it was very interesting to me that the same seems to be the case, uh, at least for these end-to-end models for uh, for uh, in the NLP area. So uh, there, there, there are, if I understand it correctly, there are methods and there, um, there are actually publications and tools that discuss the topic of adversarial um, examples in 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 NLP, uh, where it is, for example, about like. If, if you do a sentiment classification of a document and uh, with only the manipulation of one of two words or slight changes of the words, you can drastically uh, uh, change the outcome of the prediction. And um, so I was very interested to like, did do such topics like adversarial examples uh, play a role in, in, in information retrieval systems uh, where, for example, people would be able to use this to manipulate the behavior of the system by, for example, making sure that their results always come up 
which for example is a strong manipulation where you i mean it's 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 it, it's more in the context of google search obviously where you want to be first on the search results but even in a setting like yours right for example people find out aha in my publication i can always make it appear um as one of the results if i include some kind of term there and then suddenly in 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 a, in a searching a system like yours where you search for a library suddenly this publication always comes up and obviously then this would push um the 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 uh, um the citation rate extremely so uh, and i can imagine that that in in such a system you want to be um able to avoid such things and you want to be able to protect in this sense as well your system and yourself yeah that that's uh, to, uh that is uh the uh true uh if you go back to uh when you started manipulating search engine and where you have this hidden word in uh, another color and working on the frequency of course that can also happen for the embedding systems uh it's i think it's more difficult to actually work with the embedding system to manipulate but it's definitely true that you can can do it what happens right now when i look upon the different system is that it's a uh, unfortunate natural bias so it's that people are collecting data and what we talked about uh, when uh, words are not that frequent or some uh, something is predominated that will always come up um so that that is true so if you uh, if you have this normal distribution so let's say we hypothetically hypothetically talk about that okay if you know the normal distribution that uh, a, a, a um a system which is trained on bert actually has then you can make sure that those features that you are interested in that they are mentioned so you actually get picked right now i think it's a much uh, more uh, a bias that comes out that we haven't designed our system based upon how the data should look like in order to represent all the different also those things that aren't uh, so frequently mentioned for sure but if you if you know that these models have a bias to actually the most frequent and and so forth then of course you can design your uh, document in such a way that you know that a uh, neural network will always be mentioned so you actually uh, it's more about that you work on a research that has a high topic that is a popular it's a buzzword and then you will be found more so you probably not will be highest up but if you focus on research that are very popular and get many hits in for example google scholar uh then of course you will be among them and and, and not uh, highest up the, which means that uh and this is something we have talked about in the library and, uh, information and library science community that could this be a problem of influencing students to only work on things that actually got a high up up uh, high up on the hit list uh in google or any other type of search engines uh to um with eustics mechanism and those one that that aren't that relevant that people are not looking into uh will go uh will not be found because usually students look at Uh, or look uh, a normal person looks at the most top 10 most 20 so if you're not really knowing where to look you will not find this special information and i actually want to end with one which i uh, again a really good uh, paper from um, a person uh, from um, 
Karin Erik that actually wrote about this um, um, uh, first uh, comment. Uh, you, you will know the word uh, uh, based on the context it keeps. And mm -hmm. she wrote uh, actually the title of that paper is What Do You Know About an alligator when you know the company it keeps. Mm -hmm. And she gave an example here where she took different, where an alligator was a king in a country, it was in a, in a, in a children's books, and then mm -hmm. an alligator had some kind of fact information. And you found out when you train this algorithm that, that an alligator is a, a, a king that laughs a lot and would like to have a temperature around 20 degrees to find its uh, nice and, and cozy, mm -hmm. which is, if you're searching about fact about the alligator, you know that the alligator is not a king mm -hmm. um, the, and probably can't laugh. We don't know. It can perhaps laugh. Uh, and I think that those type of research is missed because that's not, it's not what people are looking for. Mm -hmm. They're looking for how to improve sentiment uh, analysis, how to improve this. But those when actually critically look at these type of tools and, and show that, you know, what do you really know about the uh, alligator based on the company it keeps? Yeah, it's based on what data you train the algorithm. And that's mm -hmm. what you get out of it. Of course. Yes. I understand. Interesting. Um, but maybe one more thing, um, <laughs> the last question, let's say from my side, um, before we maybe close, is that um, concerning the system that you described now, it is very much, right, um, you have a lot of prior information, prior knowledge that you integrate in the system from three banks, from understanding, and you have like a lot of label data. So my question is, um, how much in this space actually there has been done in with... Um, um, so reinforcement learning uh, mechanisms and aspects because like that's something that i that i found very interesting to see that um obviously right reinforcement uh, reinforcement learning is a very general uh, paradigm that you can fit many in this unsupervised method as well into it and um i'm asking in particular because something that that came up actually in, in a prior interview as well and i think it was the fourth one with rafael mitch when we were talking shortly about what, what the what what is summarized as machine teaching so machine teaching is this is this approach that, that 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 comes up in reinforcement learning over the last years where they are combining different methods uh, which are called reward shaping and curriculum learning and reverse reinforcement learning where basically what you do is um, you you in many ways um, combine prior knowledge domain expert knowledge with capabilities of deep learning systems to so the, you take the, the deep learning systems, you provide them data, you provide them the possibility to do their, to learn their own representations, to learn own uh, approximations. And um, you take the domain knowledge in the sense that you provide something like a curriculum to the agent. So, so you provide um, stepping stones of things that the, 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 that the agent should learn step by step. And you increase the difficulty of the task that the, that the agent should be solving and you can manipulate the feedback that the agent gets. And with this, this combination, you have the possibility to introduce prior knowledge, 
from from the expert domain, but as well make most out of like the capabilities of of the representation learning and, and approximation of of the deep learning uh, models and the deep learning methodology in general. So I was wondering if if something like this is happening as well in the in the um, uh, in in the NLP and in the text mining world. Uh it is definitely happening. Uh, um, that I can say uh, more in into details. I can talk about what I do in that sense. We do have this control label which we have taken. It's they are uh, they are thesaurus that are established by uh, by domain experts, which we use as the first seed, saying okay, you need to pick at least one of these, and then uh, we do an estimation and. And then we let the algorithm actually suggest candidates and we compare how far it gets. If it gets too far, we back a step and say, okay, no, uh, you went too far. Uh, and then we say that these uh, we give it negative example to make sure that it doesn't learn the wrong thing. So there is a certain things of there where we have a control mechanism where we say, okay, here's the seed. Uh, try to learn with the lexical uh, LSPs and then uh, and then uh, also with the similarity computation and then we have a control mechanism to check and if it goes too far it has to backstep and we give uh, the wrong ones we give an example that it's uh, it's incorrect mm -hmm. um, to make it learn more advanced, like uh, adv uh, advanced from understanding the first the morphology and then going to understanding the syntax and so forth. That's an interesting research topic, which I would like to actually work more on. And I do think there is research out there. Uh, I have not looked into that too much. I am just working on this type of uh, giving them a task to learn just the same task and make sure that I optimize that learning task. If it's mm -hmm. uh, data set uh, name identification or if it's hyponym and hyponym identification to make sure that I increase the recall, but re uh, uh, but also keep the precision correct. So we don't get uh, too much noise into our examples. And that that's a, is a balance because if you have a too precision oriented algorithm, then you will lose a lot of the good example that you actually want to have as a, a automatic queries suggestion terms. So it's always a balance. Do you need to allow certain a certain level of noise? Um, but this step by step learning more and more on on a, a language morphology a language level from morphology to part of speech to syntax to dependency to discourse theory that would be very interesting to look into actually so it's a, a future research topic for me yeah. very nice well that's def that that was my last question and uh, for my side I must say it was very interesting um as I said an extended version for 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 this podcast the first one um and um I think it was definitely definitely worth it and it was very interesting um is there anything else that you maybe want to mention or like to add in the closing I will definitely make sure to include many of the references that we talked about and you talked um in 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 the in the interview but uh, anything that we missed that maybe important to you mm, yeah no <laughs> actually not I, I would like to say that when you work with 
text uh, and want to do text mining, it's important to know, uh, know about the language that you want to work with and the feature of that, and especially when you go into domain specific, that you need to know that the assumption you have in the algorithm perhaps doesn't match the domain you're working on and you need to adapt your algorithm. And that observance uh, probably needs to be more raised awareness about this otherwise you end up with these biases which you don't want to have mm -hmm. i understand definitely makes sense and uh, definitely so i can imagine that there's a much more linguistic background needed in in modern nlp so that makes a lot of sense thank you to, for, for for coming on the show it has been a big pleasure and a very interesting interview and i i'm sure my my the listeners will, will definitely make a lot and enjoy it as well I hope so. <laughs> then again, thank you very much, Linda, and have a nice rest of your day. You too. Bye.